0: I'm Dan Roberts, and welcome to The Business, coming up on this week's podcast. Crack open the bubbly, get out the bunting, the recession's over. Well, kind of. ONS's preliminary estimate is that gross domestic product grew by 0.1% in the fourth quarter of 2009 as
1: compared with the previous quarter.
0: We analysed the lessons learned from over a year in the economic doldrums. Plus, everything you wanted to know about short-selling but were too scared to ask.
1: The perception is, is that we don't need it. And that's really uninformed of how markets really work.
0: We speak to a Wall Street veteran about the controversial practice that got us into this financial mess. This is The Business from The Guardian. Well, there ought to be a celebratory mood in the air. Today is the day we officially come out of recession. And joining me in this studio to discuss it, we have Heather Stewart, the Observer's economics editor, and Debbie Hargreaves, The Guardian's business editor. The reason why the mood ought to be so strong is that Britain has come out of the deepest recession since the 1930s. The trouble is we only scraped over the line, with the economy only expanding by a much weaker than expected 0.1%. So this brings to an end six consecutive quarters of contraction. It's not exactly hang out the bunting time. So Heather, take us through the numbers. Is this really such a good, uh, good moment?
2: Well, only just is the answer, really. The, the, what the Office of National Stat- Statistics told us this morning was that the economy expanded by 0.1% in the fourth quarter of last year. So officially, yes, that does mean recession is over, um, but only just and it was a a much weaker figure than a lot of the the, the city analysts and the economists were expecting.
0: It might even not be true either I mean if they revise it down.
2: That's very true I was at the press conference this morning and and, and the um, ONS chief economist was asked over and over again how confident he was about the figures and he made very clear that they've they've looked back at their figures recently and and on average the the kind of revision they make when when they've got fuller details of what's happened is 0.1 to 0.2 percent and that can be in either direction so in fact You know, it could turn out that that the economy didn't expand at all when when we have the full picture a little bit later in the year.
0: Why do you think it's so slow to bounce back? I mean, we've thrown enough at it, haven't we?
2: We certainly have. £200 billion worth of quantitative easing, the lowest interest rates ever in history um, and, and a considerable spending programme from the government. That the, the problem seems to be that there's, there still is little sign of life in the private sector. So, you know, banking and finance, for example, still completely flat, um, no signs of life in construction. Um, and one of the few areas that did seem to contribute was... Um, what the ONS quaintly calls motor trades, um, which seems to be as a result of the car scrappage scheme, which is about to run out. So that, you know, we would have hoped by now with a big depreciation in sterling, that you would be seeing the first signs of a private sector recovery. And yet there is, there is no sign of that at all in this data.
3: And don't forget, we could go back into recession in the next quarter, where those figures coming out just a week or so before we could be going into the election. Absolutely. So, so we, we may well be back into double dip
0: again. How many people were at the ONS press conference this time around? Shall we see if we can beat that for next quarter?
2: Sli- slightly more than usual, although, although there were still only about 20 or 25 of us, I think. It, was, it wasn't quite the throng they were obviously expecting, judging by the number of coffee cups they'd put out. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and how do we fare internationally? What's the sort of picture with other countries coming
2: in? Well, if you'd asked... Maybe six months or so ago, we'd have said the UK was very clearly the laggard, we were coming out of recession later than others. But actually, since then, you know, the US has had a couple of pretty strong quarters, but there are now... Strong signs that there are, are growing problems there in the housing market, for example, and elsewhere. Germany emerged from recession in the second quarter of last year, but in the fourth quarter, it was stagnant again. so that actually you know the gap between us and some of our, our major rivals is is less pronounced than it might seem, and actually e- every major economy in the world is struggling to to emerge from this this very deep recession.
0: And Debbie, I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out. I mean, where do you think we go from here? Is this it for now? Do, Do we just limp along like this for years to come or...?
3: I think we could be in for a, for a hard time for some time. Actually, I think we're, we're we are in a very weak situation. Anything, um, any small setback could push us back into recession again. We were talking this morning to a leading U.S. corporate figure who had very great fears for the U.S. economy and for the U.K., saying we weren't at all out of the woods yet. There's still a lot of unemployed people out there, particularly in the U.S., where unemployment's ten percent, and there's still a lot of credit card problems, a lot of housing debt, and um, we have big. Debts here too.
0: And Heather, you were talking about how this will play politically. I mean, I suppose the big question is whether people feel like they're out of recession. And and does there seem any sign of that yet, do you think? What do you think would start making people sort of... What's the feel-good factor?
2: Well, I mean, interestingly, um, unemployment has started to come down, which is... is you know, sort of odd as far as the economists are concerned, because it's it's usually what you call a lagging indicator. So usually you'd expect to come out of recession and then wait another six or nine months before the unemployment total started to come down. And yet the labour market does seem to have turned, and so that does hold hold out some hope that that perhaps in you know a few months' time people might start to feel better. And there also seems to have been a reasonably strong Christmas on the high street, which which you know suggests that at least those people are, who are in a job and who've perhaps seen their mortgage repayments fall quite significantly are feeling confident enough to go and spend. But, you know, other than those sort of bright spots, I think it's going to be quite a while before this feeds through into sort of ordinary people's lives, Mm. particularly because it's only such a mild recovery so far at least. And don't
3: forget youth unemployment as well, I mean unemployment's coming back but there's a hell of a lot of youth unemployment and people who've got kids of that age, which is me um, (laughs) are looking at them you know, are are they going to get a job and and even if you're in work yourself you're worried about your children and that's a big fear for the next generation
0: Mm. But you could construct a ball case that says actually um, our fears of a sort of 1930s type depression haven't really panned out. Although the headline numbers on, on GDP aren't, aren't so great, unemployment is the thing that really matters. And, and you, you could argue actually what's happened in the last year or two is we've blown the froth off the top of the economy. We've taken away um, the, the, the property bubble. We've taken away the worst of the financial bubble. But underneath, we found that consumer spending is still very resilient. The labour market is still fairly resilient. I mean, could you not argue that actually, although it, we're not going to come back to sort of roar away 3 4 5% growth rates, that may be a good thing, that actually maybe steady state is what we should be aiming for?
3: You have to think about the world's resources as well. And you have to think about is constant growth a good thing from an environmental point of view? How do you decarbonise the economy while you're pushing for constant growth? So maybe, you know, we do have to think about the economy differently. We do have to look at more of a steady state. It isn't great to keep pushing ahead with huge expansion plans.
2: But you do want a robust and healthy private sector, business sector, I think. And the worry about what's happened so far is that it's been very much propped up artificially with, with health. Help from government um, and with help from monetary policy, and that you know that is going to be pulled away quite soon. And although, no, you don't want to get back to you know kind of rampant, excessive growth of the kind that we had over the past ten years that turned out to be you know unsustainable. In order to create jobs, you know you, you do need a, some level of, of economic growth.
0: If the dynamism in the world economy is coming from 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 Asia. Um, uh, our, if our manufacturing base can be sufficiently export orientated there potentially is rising demand there you could argue that actually we don't need um, that prop um, anymore underneath retail spending or the housing market both are sufficiently strong arguably you know slightly over 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 strong um, that that it, that it's, it is manufacturing we really ought to worry about here and that that, that that the good news there is that demand is returning on a global scale even if Domestically, it still looks weak.
2: There, you do you do want that rebalancing, but you but you you still want growth. You you, you want a different mix of growth. You want to, You want to be less dependent on you know the spending of, of people who can't really afford it and are going hugely into debt. And the city too, uh, indeed. And, and financial services. You, so you want a different mix of growth, but that doesn't mean you necessarily want overall growth to be weaker. You you, you just want to be to, it to be more focused on on yes, manufacturing and exports. And of course, the risk at the moment is that we we can't see much sign that our manufacturers are really starting to benefit from strong growth elsewhere. You know, fingers crossed they will. But, you know, retooling an economy for sort of export-led growth, you know, one fears could take a long time. And there's a lot of other countries, Japan, Germany, China, you know, also very much geared towards exports and desperate to get themselves out of this downturn you know everybody's looking for export-led growth and you can't all have that at the same time unfortunately so that that's the sort of the ideal picture but whether we'll actually achieve it is is another question i think
0: Yes, the imbalances that sort of led us into this all still seem to be there don't they i mean the financial sector is just as overpowerful as it ever was Mm. and um the 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 the, the whole world is hoping that somebody else will do the consuming you Mm. know um... Mm.
2: yes and there was a lot of talk uh, internationally you know at the pittsburgh summit you know in the autumn for example about oh we have we really must do something about the these huge trade deficits that we've got, and these huge current account deficits, and actually everyone seems to have gone straight back to business as usual. You know, uh, Americans are, are back on a spending spree and desperate to prop up their housing market, and, and you know, s- so are we, looking for, for sort of strong retail sales and, and, and a, a back towards a housing bubble. And you know, you do wonder what's what's going to change. Really,
3: is it the American consumer though? Are they as buoyant as ever? I mean, uh, I thought they weren't as
2: buoyant as ever, but they are stronger than you would ever expect them to be given the extraordinary downturn that we've, that we've been through I mean it's amazing I mean the same with you know British shoppers really and British house buyers it's amazing how resilient people have been given just how big this downturn is you know relative to others that, that any of us have seen in our lifetime.
0: And Debbie do you think the, um, the, the slight reluctance of the government to sort of tackle the, the banks harder is to do with the fact that they're really worried about um, about going into the collection with another quarter of negative growth I mean I don't know how short term these things are but I mean if they if they did follow Obama and whack the banks could you see an immediate reaction and
3: well I think when the government looks at the economy it thinks the same as we do where is the growth going to come from if the city's on its knees and so it's told that on by many a banker no doubt Um, so it is wary of tackling the banking sector and being too tough on them and um, Obama is talking to a public very much disaffected after the Massachusetts election with democratic politics and talking to um, a public very much in anger about bankers' bonuses and the bounce back to profitability. Whether those plans actually make it through the Senate is another question and the government here which could enact legislation straight away is, is talking about doing smaller things and tackling these things through different methods such as living wills and higher amounts of capital which is more palatable to the banking sector. Um, I think they are very worried about knocking the city when it's down and um, very very concerned about where else our, our growth might come from, as, as heather says we're not seeing a huge um, export led recovery yet
2: and it's it's also about tax revenues because you know financial sector is a huge source of tax revenues, and we have you know an enormous deficit and that's, that's another reason that, that that makes the government anxious about doing too much to clamp down i think
0: well, there you have it, the glass half-empty Guardian and Observer <laughs> <laughs> Business and Economics Not that space. we're miserable or anything. <laughs> our attempt to, to find some cheer and, and, and celebration have uh, fizzled out within about 20 minutes. Okay, thank you all. You can read more comments and analysis about all of this at guardian.co.uk slash business. And now on to short selling. Depending on who you ask, it's seen either as an essential part of the financial system or a risky business strategy that played a key factor in numerous financial catastrophes from the Great Crash of 1929 to the collapse of Enron in 2001. Well, Bob Sloan is a veteran Wall Street trader and the author of a new book called Don't Blame the Shorts. He came into the studio recently and our regular but now holidaying host Aditya Takaborti began by asking him to set things straight and define short selling.
1: Short selling is when an investor borrows a stock from a bank or broker, generally the prime broker, borrows the stock, puts up collateral to borrow that stock, and then sells it. So you're selling something without owning it. That is the definition of short selling. How much worse would the world be if we just stopped short selling? The perception is, is that we don't need it. And that's really uninformed of how markets really work. When we go out and buy... Shares, or we go out and sell shares in our retirement account, or whatever we do, we liquidity is everything. We want the price that we see and quoted. We don't want to wait; we want our money immediately. The way Wall Street works is that short selling is the interconnectivity of Wall Street. It's how the money gets into our pockets when we want it. It's the product that hangs everything together, and it's the product that offsets risk taking in every single trading strategy that's on Wall Street. I mean, any single product, whether it's converts, preferreds, equity market making, bonds, electronic trading, index arbitrage, program trading, you can go on down the line. All these things hang together so that when we put our order in the marketplace, we get our money when we want it. They're able to get our money when we want it because they're able to offset risk. Okay. And that's, what it, that's,
4: that's why it's so important. And let's boil that down to how much wor- worse would the world be if we just ban short selling?
1: Well, I think you'd have very little liquidity. As a matter of fact… You'd be making the very people that you're angry at uh, because they've taken away too much bonus money. You're just making them richer because they would control absolutely the market making of any stock. So, if you wanted to get one message across to the
4: man in the street about how important is that, how important short selling is, how would you how would you make that as
1: plain and simple as you can? I, I think it's goes to the basic concept of what kind of honest information do we want in our marketplace. Without shorting, shorting are really the police force of the marketplace. And what we're saying is we are not happy with a few policemen, so let's get rid of the police force. And basically what we're, saying, what we're saying is the information given to us by corporations, we're going to take and be totally, uh, I would say, uh, we're not going to analyze as well as we could. And we're going to take that information as such and accept it as fact.
4: When politicians and journalists and financial regulators rail against short selling or they say so they talk about banning it
1: for periods of time,
4: can you see their point of view?
1: You know um, unfortunately, it's such an easy way to appeal to voters that I understand that the 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 you know the unemployment rate that the politician cares about is their own seat or the next election, and so that is such an easy issue to appeal to voters that says, I am beating up on people that, you know, need to be beat up on. And it's, you know, it's almost irresistible for the politician to take care of that, you know, to take, take advantage of that. So I understand it. You
4: see, you talk about short sellers as kind of the policemen of the financial markets. Um, there's another way of characterizing them, which is that they are in the business of speculation mm-hmm. rather than investment. And people tend to see investment as being good, wholesome, taking long-term stakes in businesses that then grow and thrive where speculation they see is just trying to make a quick buck having no real interest in what the business does kind of bad short-term behavior that we've seen an awful lot of in the last in the last few years
1: i think that means basically as a society we don't value dissent nor do we want to value the rights of a, of a minority well you can have dissent by just by not investing um yeah but you should you cannot have price discovery that's one way it needs to be two ways it can't be that the only way the stock can go is up. You know, there's a true market price. And um, if, if, the, if the market mechanics are rigged in such a way that the market can only go up, um, well, then you're creating bubbles in stocks that, you know, the only way to buy, the only way to make, only market action that can happen is that the stock goes up. You know, that, that, there's no price discovery.
4: Okay. So where was the price discovery? Where was the short selling during the huge oil price bubble that we saw just over a year
1: ago? Well, commodities are different than stocks. That they still have short selling there, don't they? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I mean, I think there's a there's a misperception out there that somehow um, short selling is a very profitable business. It's actually an unprofitable business. You know, ninety f- more, ninety seven percent of the hedge fund managers actually run a short portfolio, lose money on their shorts. The reason why they do it is well, they're obviously trying to make money, but there is they're also the reason why they do it is because they want to offset the risk of the long position. That is why hedge funds are you know the best investment vehicle compared to any other investment vehicle by, you know, by miles.
4: Can you see any argument for banning short selling in particular markets or banning at particular times? For instance, we had a, a short term ban on short selling of certain bank stocks over here. Yeah. And you had something similar in America. You
1: know, it's very interesting. Look, I lived in Japan in the early 90s, and um, we essentially had the same problem. We had banks with bad loans that didn't want to recognize the value. So the policy response was get rid of foreign investment firms, ban certain t- investment techniques, ban securities lending, ban short selling. Did it work? No. Japan is in the worst deflation in 20 years. You're
4: so not had- going to blame that upon their tinkering in financial market regulation. I mean, Japan no, had a but it was huge
1: macroeconomic it, it was the wrong, that's right. It was the wrong policy response at the time. Let me, let me, let me expand upon that a little bit. It can't be that short selling that creates capital, short selling that we, we use when we want to buy a convertible bond and we short stock against it. We buy preferred stock, we short stock against it. Um, those things create capital for companies. The buyer of the bond, the lender of money wants to offset the risk. So they short stock against that. And the company gets to use that money because they've sold a bond. Okay? That's good short selling, no? People get capital to use, to make payroll, to make investments, to hire people. Bad short selling is short selling that you do to destroy a company's equity stock price. So if I get this correctly, short selling is very good for me if I'm a corporation, if I create capital that I can use. And it's bad if it, the stock price doesn't do what I want it to do. Is that what you're saying? Well, the argument
4: would go that there are certain points, particularly when markets are in a panic, when concerted short selling can actually disrupt things.
1: Well, I think what we, the, what I'd love the, the, you know, kind of listener mm. uh, to understand is that in the depths of the financial crisis, selling what you already own is not short selling. That is the sale of a quote unquote long position, what you already own. Short selling by any measure, by anything that I've seen, is 15%, 17% of the market activity. And and during the peak of the banking panic in
4: September, October 2008, Mm -hmm. there was all the sort of selling of shares that you're talking about that's but true. there was also short selling going on yeah, but there it was, was, it was huge it, short selling going on yeah, to the point where no, that's not it, right. it, well the, that's to the not point right. well right. to, to the point where the financial watchdog over here had to launch a uh, first of all a ban on short selling and secondly had to um investigate exactly why there was a concerted short selling and what did they find
1: you would imagine that you, long sellers outnumbered short sellers by like four and or five you, you to, would imagine that. So the panic w- of long only managers selling their stock. And it wasn't this kind of evil conspiracy that, you know, people had banded together to attack the financial system. It just it, it didn't happen. Just because they couldn't find a smoking gun, though, doesn't imply there wasn't a corpse. Nah, I think that's a bad analogy. But anyway,
0: that was Bob Sloan. His book, Don't Blame the Shorts, is out now. More details on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash thebusiness. And on that note, time to say goodbye. Next week, we'll be hearing from Josh Lerner, Professor of Investment Banking at Harvard Business School, on why public efforts to boost entrepreneurship are failing. Somehow, Apple's managed at least so far to capture, you know, the lion's share of the rents rather than, you know, the, the other people in the food chain. This show was produced by Andy Duckworth and Ben Green. I'm Dan Roberts, and that was The Business.